All right, welcome to Studio B, our weekly podcast. Thank you again for tuning in. Uh, for those who are watching right now, we want to make sure that you go ahead and click our Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe and like and follow uh, to make sure that you don't miss one single episode uh, of the hot topics that we have happening here on Studio B. Um, today, I'm going to do a continuation of what we did last week, but I want to talk to you uh, today from the subject of the opportunity at hand, um, the opportunity at hand. Um, there is a great opportunity for us um, as it relates to moving um, agendas, social items uh, forward in a very positive manner if we would only seize the opportunity at hand. In Isaiah 38, um, Hezekiah fell mortally ill. And uh, Isaiah came to him and said, get your affairs in order or put your house in order because you're getting ready to die. And so Isaiah issued a challenge to Hezekiah to get his affairs in order because the time would soon be at hand. And I believe that that message in Isaiah 38 is resonating even right now in 2020, that there is an opportunity for us to get our affairs in, 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 in hand, to put our house in order. Um, it has been rightfully said, and even Tony Evans said it just a few weeks ago, that America doesn't have a social problem. America has a God problem. And if God is our problem, no matter what type of policies we throw at it, um, if we do not attack it spiritually, we will never solve the issues of our day. Uh, matter of fact, Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the tearing down of strongholds. And so there's a God problem that is in our land right now. And it is mainly because um, we have turned our back and pushed God out of every facet of our lives. And so what we need to do as a nation, as a people of those who love God is collectively come back together in John, 1 John 1 and 9 and confess our sins. And the Bible says that if we do confess our sins, he would be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But as Isaiah told Hezekiah to put his house in order, because the time of his demise would soon be at hand, I believe that that message is appropriate for us even right now in 2020. Um, while it's so easy to look at the other things that are going on and to point our finger in the direction of other people, uh, it is important that we, um, as a culture, as a people, as individuals, first get our own house in order. Uh, the Bible talks about this in Matthew chapter number seven, that why do you look at the speck in your neighbor's eye when you have a plank sticking out of yours? Uh, the scriptures go on to say to take the plank out of your own eye and then you will be in a better position to take the speck out of your neighbors. And so right now I want to talk to you a little bit about the opportunity that is afforded to us, the opportunity at hand uh, specifically for black America, but for America as a whole and individuals at large. Um, we have a, a tremendous opportunity that has been uh, presented to us. Um, and I believe that that opportunity has been presented to us by God himself. And too often, uh, saints of God, too often uh, we find comfort in the fact of pointing out the shortcomings of others because it makes us feel good about our own selves. But in doing so, what we do is miss the golden opportunity 
um, to really commune with God in a very personal way so that we can fix ourselves. And when I say fix ourselves, I do not mean void of the God, of God's power. I mean to address the issues that all of us um, inwardly have in our own lives. But in regards to black America, um, I believe that right now we have a, um, a culture that is being presented to us um, that does not represent us in a very positive light. Um, the research that I've done over these past couple of weeks and even months um, that leads me to these conclusions have been thorough. Um, I really try to examine the issues that are going on right now, not from a knee-jerk perspective, but really sitting down and crunching the numbers and doing the research and really asking myself some hard-hitting uh, questions that I must first answer internally um, before I can point that question to anybody else. And so in that same manner of what Isaiah told Hezekiah, I have to first have my house in order. Uh, my life has to be right. My life has to be lived uh, in a place that is consistent with what my beliefs are before I can ever point a finger at anybody else. And so I believe that it is time for black America, um, while all the issues of the world are going on, for us to look inwardly first. Um, and then once we address the issues that are internal, um, the issues that are plaguing our own com uh, communities, then we'll be better suited to look outside of our communities. But we first must look inwardly. And that look inwardly can be very, very hard. It can be very discouraging um, because you have to go back into those deep, dark closets that many of us have put padlocks on and we kind of live by the mantra of out of sight, out of mind. So as long as I'm not talking about it, then it's okay. As long as it's not in my face every day, then I've dealt with it. Um, but black America as a whole generally doesn't deal with pain and disappointment and frustration in very positive ways. And so it is a time for us um, as a community, as an ethnicity, as a race, if I can say that, um, for us to really start looking at some hard truths within ourselves. And so today I want to present to you some information that is uh, well-researched, um, and I want to present it in a way that is viable. I want to present it in a way that is non-judgmental uh, because I believe that these are areas that we can all uh, improve in. And so you've heard me say many times before that uh, black America is not a victim. We are not a victim. Uh, we are strong people. Uh, we have a strong faith and a strong belief in God. Uh, we have overcome tremendous obstacles that have been placed in our way, uh, even since our first stepping on this continent uh, in 1619, we have continually knocked down barriers uh, that have been placed before us, and we have gone on to achieve great and magnificent things. And we did this with perseverance and with determination, um, but we did this with the help of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, walking with us through our years. And with that said, I believe that is the foundation because uh, black America has always had a strong belief in God, a strong belief in God. Um, not just a intellectual or a head knowledge of God, but a strong belief um, that there is a divine person that is leading and guiding us. And I believe that that is still appropriate in 2020, that that same God um, that brought grandmama through and great, great grandmama through and great, great grandfather through is that exact same Jesus, that exact same God that is available for us here today. And so with that said, I want to present some things that I think we need to look at factually and have an open and honest conversation and then begin to start talking about how we can close uh, some of these gaps. And one of the ways that I think that we can do that is by getting our household in order financially. 
Uh, the black dollar can change a lot of things. Uh, your money can change um, the way that things happen. And I always want you to remember this. This is something that I always tell my kids. It's not your salary that makes you wealthy. It's your spending habits. It's not the amount of money that you make, but it's how you spend what you make. And so I need you to understand that. I need you to understand that, that it's not about how much money you make. It's about how you spend and how you manage what you make. Wealth is a crucially important measure of economic health. Um, wealth allows families to transfer earn, uh, income earned in the past to meet the spending demands in the future. That's what wealth is. Wealth and rich are two different things. Wealth allows families to transfer income from the past to meet the spending demands in the future. And such it is by building up college and, and savings to make sure that when certain emergencies come up, uh, we have a substantial amount of money that has been saved that we can meet whatever issues that may arise in our life. And this is called being financially uh, secure. And I believe if we can do that as a nation, as a people group, then we can move the needle in a much, much more direct way. I want to kind of give you something. I want to look at a, our current situation and take you back to 1954. And these numbers come from the U.S. Census Bureau. In 1954, the collective buying power of black America was $16 billion annually. Uh, that was in 1954. The collective buying power of black America in 1954 was $16 billion. Today, in 2020, the collective, the collective buying power of black America is $1.4 trillion. Now, I want you to think about that number, that in 1954, the collective buying power or consumer rate of black America was $16 billion. In 2020, now the collective buying power or the consumer ratio of black America now is $1.4 trillion. If black America economy was uh, a country, we would be the 15th wealthiest country in the world. Out of the 196 countries that are on the earth right now, if the buying power of black America were a country, we would be the 15th wealthiest country in the world. $1.4 trillion equates to giving every black man, black woman, black boy, black girl, $26,200 to spend annually. That's what $1.4 trillion will do to the black economy. And so we go from $16 billion in 1954 to $1.4 trillion in 2020. And so it is a very, very significant change. It is a very, very significant change. Now, we're going to talk about some numbers about what that means and the actual practicality of those numbers. But when we also look in 1954, one out of every four black Americans owned a home and had a car in the driveway. Those same numbers now in 2020 are one in eight. So it was one in four. Now it's one in eight. So I want you to think about that in 1954, when times were much different than they are right now in 2020, black America owned, owned their own home and had a car in the driveway in 1954. As of 2019, Forbes.com put together their annual list. And in America, with a population of about 373 million people, there are 18 million 600 millionaires that occupy America. 18 million 600, 18 million 600,000 millionaires in America. 
out of that 18.6 million millionaires, black America makes up 1,488,000 millionaires in America. So in 2019, the most recent data that I can pull, we have 1.488 million black Americans who are millionaires that reside in America with the average wealth of $8,965,000. So you have 1.488 million black Americans who are considered to be millionaires with the average wealth of just under $9 million. That was in the recent um, uh, data uh, collection of 2019. So I want you to think about these numbers for a second. In 1954, the collective buying power of black America was $16 billion. In 2020, that is now $1.4 trillion. In 1954, one in four black Americans owned a home and had a car in the, in the driveway. Now we're in one in eight. Now in 2019, there are 1,488,000 black Americans who are millionaires. And that's discretional income with an average wealth of just under $9 million. So that's our current situation right now. Now we're going to talk about the the economic gap that exists between whites and blacks and Hispanics and Asian. And we'll talk about all those numbers in detail and talk about what the practical application of these numbers mean in 2020. But when things go unchallenged, they oftentimes seems normal. And after centuries of slavery, black people must realize that we now have to work towards building generational wealth and learn to invest our money to establish trust funds for our wealth that can be passed down to future generations. And one of the ways that we're going to be able to do that is by establishing a system of wealth within the black community. And again, what Isaiah said to Hezekiah was, you're getting ready to pass, go and get your house in order. So we've identified that there are some areas of growth as it relates to uh, black America. Now, in 1954, when you got one in four people who are owning homes, have a car in the driveway, to now in 2021 and eight, and now you have in 2020 where 73% of all births in the black community come from out of wetlock homes, meaning single parent homes, we see that there is a huge difference between 1954 and 2020. Now, we would just be absolutely crazy not to address the elephant in the room and look at the dismantling of the African-American family to point to some of the social ills that we are now experiencing in 2020. When the nucleus of the family is disrupted and even dismantled, it causes generational problems. And one of the ways that it causes generational problems is in the economics of the family. When the father or the patriarch of the family is taken out of the family due to whatever pertaining uh, circumstances, when the father is taken out of the home, it produces with that um, consequences that will be uh, manifested generations to follow. So one of the direct causes of the huge gap in income and earning power exists in the fact of destroying the black nuclear family, absentee fathers. It is a real pandemic within the black community. And it is in time, it is very important that we start to address those issues in a very succinct way. Now, this is going to be discussed a little bit later when we talk about the practical applications about closing that economic gap. But one of the problems that we have is that the research of black consumer choices um, have found that blacks consider the cool factor, which has created what's called the halo effect. 
and it influences not just uh, consumers of color, but the mainstream as well. And Cheryl Grace, who is the senior vice president of the U.S. Strategic Community Alliance, uh, said that these figures invested by multinational conglomerates in R&D to develop products and marketing that appeal to black consumers specifically is indeed paying off very handsomely. And you're going to see that black consumers are the target of a lot of these advertising agencies because they understand how we spend our money. And they understand that we consider the cool factor before we consider the investment factor. And so advertising agencies develop specific strategies as it relates to black America and how they market material in our direction. We only think about the dollars that we have in our hand now, not the potential earning power that we have in the future or what these particular dollars can do with our kids and our kids' kids. We have to what's called the hell with the future kind of mindset when it comes to money. And we only deal with the tangible money that we can touch right now and not the future potential earning power that we can possess. And so this common scenario for many blacks, when we get a huge chunk of change or money or a tax refund, we go to the nearest appliance store, we go to the end mall or a car dealer. Because black people, I want you to hear that this is, um, as reported in Nielsen.com, spend 4% more money annually than any other race, despite the fact that we are the least represented race and the race that lives in poverty at the highest rate. So we are the race or we are the ethnicity that lives in poverty at the greatest rate, but yet we spend more money than those who don't live in the same poverty stricken areas. And this comes from the Institute of Policy Studies for the Co uh, Cooperation of Economic Development. And so it says if the current trend continues financially, it's going to take the black family 228 years to close that economic gap but it would take the same Hispanic family 84 years to close that same gap. Well, what in the world is going on? Well, it's our spending habits. And in 2020, you'll find a very interesting statistic that 37% of all blacks still don't have a bank account, but instead rely on check cashing services, prepaid debit cards and cash apps on their cell phones because we're living in an all cash lifestyle that allows more spending and less saving. Now hear this, we are relying on an all cash that allows for more spending and less saving. Because typically what happens in the African American family is that we are not taught about the principles of financial stewardship. And so money has become one of those taboo issues that we generally don't like to talk about. And so if you think about it from this standpoint that we are graduating kids 12 years in school and we release them into college and release them into life and they have no formal education when it comes to the most important things that are going to be affecting their life every single day of their life. And that's money. So you have kids that are graduating high school, graduating college that don't know how to balance a checkbook. They don't know the difference between a debit card and a credit card. They have no idea of how credit works. They have no idea of how loans work. And money is going to infiltrate every single aspect of their life. And so we, we start our children off on a bad foot because the thing that's going to impact them the most, they know the least about. And so the trend just, continue, uh, just continues to keep on going down the track because we do not intervene in a very real way. 
And so when you're talking about the economic impact that we have today about getting our house in order, it will start by us recognizing that there is a problem. And when we look at 1954 and all the economic advancements and and all the ways that black America was prospering, even in 1954, and look at the family unit now in 2020, you will see dramatic differences. And so you'll find that that a lot of black people don't even own bank accounts. So consequently, the more items brought and the more expensive it may be, this is what signifies the black interpretation of net worth. So here's what the black mindset is, according to this Pew Research, that the attaining of tangible things shows how wealthy I am. And it has been said that black America is the only race that wears its wealth. And so while we can go and get a average pair of Nikes that costs twenty five dollars, that still got the Nike check sign on it. We will rather bypass those and go and buy the more expensive Nikes that cost five times as much more as the same shoe that we just looked at. Because black America tends to look at the interpretation of having uh, material, uh, material and tangible things as a way in which we validate our wealth. But no matter when you go out and buy that car, it's new today, it'll be old tomorrow. And so we invest in things that do not hold or keep their value. We invest in a whole lot of depreciating assets. And so what we may buy for a thousand dollars today in five years, if we try to go and trade that same thing that we bought brand new for a thousand dollars, it has depreciated in value almost up to 40%. So now what we bought for a thousand dollars, we can only get $600 of it back. And our lives are filled with all of these tangible depreciating assets. And this is what's going on in the black community right now. And I'm going to get to some things in just a little bit where I can show you that black America's potential um, is great. Um, Black America's potential when we are just given uh, equal playing ground and we are given the rights and equality that is due us being people can uh, not only survive, but thrive uh, in a in a capitalist society that rewards ideas and inventions. And so when you're looking at our problem, um, 228 years to close that gap between our white counterparts and 84 years for Latinos to claim uh, to close that same gap. So it is time for us to get our house in order. It is time for us to really begin to start to look at how we hold ourselves and really start having some really um, personal conversations within our own communities about how we can do better. And that's the topic of and that's what we're discussing today. Um, discussing the ideas of that black America is looking for this and looking for that and looking for this and looking for that. The power of black America holds within black America. And if we look at internally what we have going on, we'll see a lot of things that can work out to our good. And so in 2020, 74% of all new births in the black American community are to out of wedlock home or to single parent households. Saints of God, please don't misunderstand this. Please do not. You can Google this. You can research it. Um, but the impact of the father is dramatic. It is, it is, it is, it is dramatic and it has absolute consequences in your life. It, it, it is a great determiner. It's, it's not absolute, but it is a great determiner, uh, determination on, on whether or not you will do well financially, whether you will do well educationally, and whether you will do well uh, in a family structure. 
Uh, it is a great it is a great mode to use. Now, again, it's not absolute because there are some people out there that have bucked that trend. I being one of them. So it's not saying that if you're born into a single parent household that you can't go on to do great and magnificent things. No, not at all. Uh, you see Barack Obama, whose father was not in his life for the majority of his life, and he went on to be the president of the United States. So it's not an absolute fact that if you're born into that particular demographic that you're going to live this particular life. However, we cannot, um, we cannot ignore the facts. And the facts is, is that the absentee father and the destroying of the nuclear black family is directly impacting our culture. It is directly impacting our culture. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that I will visit the sins of the father to the second and third and the fourth generations. And so this is impacting us in a great and a mighty way. But so we need to talk about those things, not sweep them under the rug and not act like they don't exist. And so when we begin to start looking at what we're doing as a society and as excuse me, not as a society, but as a culture, as a people group, we are able to have some real grassroots conversations in regards to what we can do. So in 2020, the black spending power of black America is one point four trillion dollars. Now, I want to collectively give you a 30,000 foot view of what that looks like. So these categories are where percentage of black spending is greater in proportion to the population. So I'm going to look at the population at large, which is 373 million people in America, depending on what census you look at. And I'm looking at the U.S. Bureau of, um, of Statistics, uh, .gov, so you can Google these numbers. Uh, so when you're looking at these categories that I'm getting ready to mention, this is the percentage of black spending power in proportion to their population. And so when we talk about $1.4 trillion, I'm going to show you where $1.4 trillion from the black perspective and only the black perspective is going. So when you're looking at ethnic hair and beauty aids, the total population spends $63.5 million a year in ethnic hair and beauty aids. That's the total population. So when you're looking at the populace of America, and not every individual, of course, so it doesn't take into account a five-year-old child, but when you're looking at the total populace of America, the total populace of America spends $63.5 million for ethnic hair and beauty aids. Well, out of that $63.5 million, black America, with the $1.4 trillion that we have, spend $54.4 million of the $63 million that is spent on ethnic hair and beauty aids. And so I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that collectively, that black America makes up about 13.5, 14% of the U.S. population. And so the total populace that is spent on ethnic hair and beauty aids is $63.5 million. And black America by itself makes up 54.4 million of the $63.5 million. Now, when you're looking at where those monies go, uh, we talked about ethnic hair. We talked about the beauty aids, about $54.4 million going directly to ethnic hair and beauty aids. Now, when you're talking about women's fragrances, uh, fragrances, the total population spends $679 million on perfume, on perfume and smell goods. Think about that number. $679 million a year is spent on perfume. Out of that $679 million, black America makes up $152 million. 
that black America spends on women's uh, fragrances. Now, uh, we want you to smell good. Praise the Lord. Uh, uh, Perfume is wonderful. But we contribute out of that $1.4 trillion, $152 million of that goes to fragrances. I want you to think about personal soaps and bath needs. Okay, so the personal soaps and bath needs. The total populace spends about $3.4 billion a year on personal soap and bath needs. Black America. Black America spends on personal soap and bath needs. Now, this goes to our upbringing, so praise the Lord for it. But we spend almost $300 million a year on personal soap and bath needs. And this is according to blackmenservices.com. You can go and read that this is an offset of the U.S. Census, and they work in partnership with the U.S. Census and able to track where spending goes. So when we're talking about the black spending power of $1.4 trillion in 2020, that has gone up significantly in 1954 from $16 billion to now $1.4 trillion, we have significant buying power as it relates to our dollar here in the United States. Now, when you look at how we spend this money, that's a whole nother segment. Now, what does this mean in practicality? Well, what this means is when you look at how the dollar circulates and how long it spends in a particular community, the dollar circulates within the black community an average of six hours before it leaves. So black on black or black uh, businesses, whatever the case may be, the dollar rotates or circulates within the black community for about a grand six hours and then it's out. In the white community, it's about 17 days. So within the white community, they circulate their dollars about for about 17 days. In the Jewish community, that number goes up to about 20 days. In the Asian community, the num- the dollar circulates within the Asian community for a month before it leaves out. So think about these numbers, the practical application of it. The dollar rotates in the black community for just six hours before it leaves. It rotates in our community for six hours, and then it's on the highway leaving to somewhere else, going to either a white, Jewish, or an Asian community, or any other number of communities. But the dollar only circulates within our community for six hours. 17 in the white community, 17 days in the white community, 20 days in the Jewish community, and 30 days in the Asian community. So think about that. And I want you to think about this as we come to these numbers at the end of our podcast, because I want to give you some real grassroots numbers and what this looks like based on communities and how we can close the economic, the educational gap that exists right now in 2020. Right now, there are 21 owned banks, uh, black owned banks in the United States of America, 21. There are 21 black owned businesses that call themselves banks in the United States. And they only make up for approximately $4.7 billion in combined assets. So you have 21 black owned banks in the United States that collectively account for $4.7 billion in assets. Now, $4.7 billion may seem like a big number. However, $4.7 billion is only 0.43% of America's, black America's combined spending power of $1.4 trillion. So 21 black-owned businesses, uh, black-owned banks in America that account for $4.7 billion in combined assets. 
Well, that's only 0.43% of black America combined uh, spending power of $1.4 trillion. So think about this. If the black dollar only circulates for six hours in the black community, 17 days in the white community, 20 days in the Jewish community, 30 days in the Asian community. Think about what that would mean if we concentrate our dollars and understand the power of that dollar. Or how do you get these particular dollars to stay in these communities for much longer than six hours? Well, it's because they understand the idea of cooperation. They understand the idea of community. And they understand the value of working together. They really do understand the value of working together. And so when you see this, it's not about one person getting up over the other. It's about the community as a whole rising together. And so the, the, the dollar will circulate from Bob's shop to Karen's shop to Michael's shop to X, Y, and Z shop to this store to that store before it exits the community and goes somewhere else. Whereas in the black community, that dollar is only going to stay there for six hours. And so when you're looking at the school of thought as it relates to the black spending power and how we can get our houses in order, we need to be looking at these numbers and personally identifying where we are missing the mark at as it relates to our financial dollars. Because dollars are going to affect every single aspect of your life. Um, as a pastor, I know that um, out of all the parables that Jesus taught, over half of them had to do with money. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about any other subject in the New Testament. Okay, Jesus said one of the most powerful statements about money. He said, listen, you can't serve both God and money. You can't serve them both. You're going to either love one or hate the other. Money is going to infiltrate. It's going to affect every aspect of your life from the time that you're born to the time that you die. It takes money to be born. It takes money to die and everything in between. And so it's very important that we understand this opportunity as it relates to looking inwardly in our community and fixing some problems that I believe can go a long way in helping us to do this. Another school of thought is shared by this guy named Matthew Corbin, um, who wrote um, a um, uh, op-ed that says why black people are still broke. And he listed five reasons why black America is in a condition that it's in. He said, first of all, black people spend more money than we make. He says, secondly, black people do not support other black owned businesses. He said, thirdly, that black people don't save their money. He said, fourthly, that black people don't know how to invest. And he said, fifthly, that black people are not working towards getting out of poverty in a very significant way. And you'll find this in blackmenamerica.com. This is the source in which I pulled this information from. And so there are five reasons that he states. Now, we can go through these things in detail, but I want you to understand how this breaks down in 2020. You can't spend more money than you make. Okay, You can't spend more money than you make. Uh, you'll be on the treadmill of life if that is your mindset. And I said in the beginning that it's not about how much money you make. It is about your spending habits. Whatever dollar amount that is, that's not the money that you have. That's not the money that you gauge your budget and spend from. You don't have as much money as what has been deposited into your account. One of the ways in which I uh, do my own personal life is, of course, when I get um, my my uh, my check from the employment by which I have, of course, I give to God. That's the first thing that I do. And then secondly, I give to myself. I pay myself. And so out of the money in which I get that is deposited into my account, I give God his and then I give myself mine. 
and I put a certain percentage into a savings account and that money cannot be touched. It is, it is for savings purposes only. That is liquid cash in the event that anything happens. Okay. So when we understand the fact that you cannot spend more than you make, you will keep yourself out of that proverbial hole. Because if you're making, if you bring in $100, that's not the money that you budget from. You don't budget from $100 because you don't actually have $100. So you have to budget from real numbers. And by budgeting from real numbers, you'll keep yourself out of those particular holes. We don't support black-owned businesses. Now, we can all go and say we're going to black out this for a particular day. And we're only going to buy black for a particular day. But after that day is over, many black people uh, will not uh, frequent those same businesses. And one of the things that I found very interesting about this is that when we go into a black owned business, uh, me being a black man that has a black business and a black customer comes into my business, then um, um, erroneously what's going to happen is I'm going to be asked for a discount. Uh, I'm going to be asked why my prices are as high as that shop. Um, and one of the things that we don't understand about the value of the uh, uh, of, of supply and demand and, and the value of buying in bulk is that when I buy in bulk, I can sell at greater discounts. When I don't have the capacity to buy in bulk, I have to raise my prices to cover what it took for me to get that particular product. And so inevitably what happens when a black person comes into a black business and they'll see a particular shirt for $20 and they'll say, well, why is that shirt $20 when over here at Ross it's $12? Well, Ross has a greater buying capacity than does this black owned business. And so Ross can buy those particular shirts in a much greater bulk than does this black business, which means that Ross can offer that same shirt at a much greater discount than can this black business. But because we don't understand the supply and demand aspect of business, we say, well, I'm not going to spend $20 here when I can go over there and buy the same shirt for $12. So what happens to that black dollar? It does not go into that black business, which says that it will not circulate to any other black business, thus continuing the flow, continuing the ebb, and continuing the cycle that we are having a hard time jumping out of. And another one that he says now is um, we don't understand the value of saving money. You have to save, 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 you have to save. You can't spend all that you make. You have to save. You have to have some money in the bank. Now, there was a recent um, uh, statistic that I read some months ago, and I tried my best to try to find it. So I'm going to put this in air quotes and somebody out there can possibly find it. But it says that uh, 72% uh, think, the, no, excuse me, 62% of Americans could not afford a $500 emergency. Like if a $500 emergency came up right now, 62% of Americans could not afford that $500 emergency. Well, and that's because of the value of saving. Now watch this. Here's why many people get discouraged with saving is because you don't see the number rising significantly in a very quick, uh, short amount of time. You get discouraged saving $5 or $10 or $20, but savings is a journey. It's, it's a marathon. It's not a race. 
the whole concept of saving is a marathon. It means that I'm setting aside a certain amount, regardless of what that amount may be, regardless of what that amount may be. I am setting aside this amount diligently every single whatever time you put out there, whatever period of time that you so happen to put out there. And I am not trying to gain Rome in a day. I am trying to strategically over a period of time amass a particular amount of money. And so whether that's $5, $10, $20, just imagine that if you were to save $10 a week starting in 2020. So we're at right now in uh, July, so we're seven months in. So let's, let, let's take six times four, which is 24. Think about $10, $10, $10 a week. If you would just save $10 a week, put $10 a week in your savings account since uh, Jan uh, January 1st of 2020, just think about the money that you would have right now being here mid-July. Saving is not a race, it's a marathon. So you, it's not that I'm trying to save a million dollars within a span of 12 months. That's just not practical. And if that's your goal, then you will get discouraged in saving. Uh, my goal is from month to month, if I see $100 increasing in my savings, that's a great start. If I'm seeing uh, $150, that's a great start. So here's what I do. I begin to save with a particular end in mind. And so I look at 2020 and I say, by the end of 2020, I want to personally have in my savings account $2,000. Okay, so here's the math. I take $2,000 and I divide that by 12. Okay, well here's the even greater math. To be even more specific, if you get paid bi-weekly, you take that uh, $2,000 and divide that bi-weekly over the period of 2020, over the 12 months of 2020. That will give you the specific amount that you need to put in your account every single time that you get paid. And if you do that diligently over the entire year, the goal that you set forth at the beginning of the year will be materialized come December the 31st at the end of the year. It's not about saying that I want to make uh, put a million dollars in the bank and you're only making $50,000 a year. That's just not an applicable plan. You're going to get discouraged and you will not hold to it. So your savings is over a journey. It is not a race. And then fourthly, and we'll talk about this next, uh, that we don't understand the power of investing. Uh, investing, we kind of mentioned it in a little bit, that we like to put our money into tangible depreciating assets. And we're going to talk about this on a future broadcast when we're talking about economic development and home ownership. Uh, home ownership is one of the greatest ways that white America has used to bolster their financial portfolio. It's by owning a home. That is one of the easiest ways that is one of the most time and tested ways that people um, who are in the white community asian community doesn't make a difference it is one of the ways that they bolster their personal portfolio is by their home not by their cars not by their jewelry not by any of that it is the homestead it is their home that gives them the greatest potential of saving and so one of the ways that we need to learn how to do this is to invest and so, as I said in 1954, that one in four black Americans owned their own home and had a car in the driveway. Now in 2020, the number is now one in eight. So more black people are renting right now as opposed to owning homes. Well, renting has to be done with a end goal in mind. 
Okay, renting has to be done with an end goal in mind. I'm not renting for the sake of renting. I'm renting for the sake of eventual home ownership. Because what's happening is if you are renting whatever said property, you are paying somebody else's mortgage. So say, for instance, you're living in a house right now and you are paying that house and that house has a mortgage or a rent that you're paying of $2,000. Let's say $2,000. Well, there's a high likelihood that the owner of that house has a mortgage on that house for $1,000. And so you're paying $2,000 in rent. So when you pay your rent to that particular mortgage guy, you're paying the $1,000 real mortgage for that particular uh, property, plus putting $1,000 in that particular investor's pocket. Now, what's happening is if he's a smart investor, he can take your $2,000 and put the full $2,000 toward his mortgage. He can put the $1,000 toward his mortgage and then another thousand toward the principal. And so that particular home that you're renting is now being paid off in a matter of 10 to 15 years. And so now he's been renting that property out for 10 to 15 years. And now every single rent payment that comes from that house is now cash um, that is going directly into his bank account. And so the, the power of investing, the power of understanding the investment arm will help to close the gap, the economic gap that exists between whites and blacks and so on and so forth. And because 96% of all Americans, uh, black Americans, excuse me, have not been taught about financial literacy. It is not something that we talk about around the tables of our home. We don't sit around and teach our children about how to balance a checkbook. We don't sit around and teach our children, uh, teach our children about the principles of saving. We don't do that. And so we release them into the world and tell them this, go get a job, work hard and do your job. That's what we tell our kids. We tell our kids to go find a job, work hard and, and do your job. And so what we eventually wind up doing is creating the same cycle that we're trying so desperately to get out of. But it's going to take a very concerted effort as it relates to black America to address this particular issue. Now, I talked about it a little bit before in regards to advertising agencies who have created specific models as it relates to African-Americans because they understand. Now, please hear what I'm saying here, Studio B. An advertising agency spends an exorbitant amount of money on research, an exorbitant amount of money on research. So every commercial that you see has been specifically designed from the music that is playing in the background to the color of the clothes that the actors are wearing to the scenery to everything involved with that commercial. It has been specifically designed for a target audience. The time in which that commercial comes on has been specifically designed for a particular target audience. It has been specifically designed because they understand the process of buying power. And so every ad, every commercial that you see is meant to play on a particular emotion of the person seeing that ad. And so advertising agencies have done a magnificent job in making things very appealing making things seem as though I got to have that. Even though what I currently have, nothing is wrong with it, but I got to have that. And so they speak and they create models around how to draw buyers into getting that particular product. And, and advertising agencies get a handsome reward for making those particular commercials. But blacks in particular, because blacks spend considerably more time watching TV than do the normal population. Blacks spend on average per week, 
50 hours and 38 minutes watching TV. 50. Black America spends considerably more time on TV. We spend 50 hours and 38 minutes on average watching TV. Compare that to 39 hours and six minutes for everybody else. Now that, now, now, now hear what I'm saying. We spend throughout the week more than two days collectively watching TV. That's a lot of TV, y'all. That's a lot of TV. And advertising agencies understand that we're watching that much TV. And so what's happening is they are creating those ad spaces around that demographic that is that involved in the TV watching process. Now, not only are they addressing that issues in regards to TV, we've also found that black America spend much more time on website and apps on their smartphones. Black America spends more time on social media than do their white counterparts to the degree of 29 hours and 46 minutes a, a, a week uh, on social media sites. Now, please hear what I'm saying. So advertising agencies understand where the eyes are aimed and they put together mo uh, models to address that particular demographic. And then they create products to meet that particular demographic. And so as it relates to black America, black America spends considerably more time, considerably more time, considerably more time watching TV and on our smartphones and on social media than does any other ethnicity. And so the advertising agencies and the advertising gurus understand that and create products that we are more apt to go out and buy. And so you got to understand that when you're watching TV and you're watching this and you, you're on this particular app and you're on that particular uh, social media site, that there are now uh, specific strategies to pull that $1.4 trillion away from you very strategically. And so you got to think about these things as it relates to the opportunity that we have right now in 2020. Uh, we can change the paradigm. We can change the paradigm. We can cause the paradigm to shift. And we can do that in very strategic ways. Uh, I was watching something the other day about uh, Black Lives Matter being painted on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And uh, I asked a friend of mine, oh, that's great that you painted it on Fifth Avenue, but why wouldn't you paint Black Lives Matter on Wall Street? Wall Street was six miles down the road. Uh, six miles down the road from Fifth Avenue in front of Trump Tower. Uh, but you could have painted Black Lives Matter on Wall Street, being the financial capital of the United States, Wall Street, Wall Street, uh, that is directly impacting the lives financially of everybody here in America. Uh, why not put Black Lives Matter down Wall Street? Well, please hear what I'm saying. Uh, we have a unique opportunity right now to do what Isaiah told Hezekiah, to get our house in order. Uh, we have a strong base that we are able to launch from if we only have the conversations needed in order to change the, com uh, change the paradigm. And one of the ways that we can do that, uh, thanks to God, is by harnessing the power of our dollar and really beginning to uplift the community aspect of where we are as a people and the community aspect that at one point in time in our history that we really did enjoy. 
Uh, the old saying is that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, that was absolutely applicable back in our days. When you talk to your mother and your grandmother, um, you, you know this growing up in a black house that um, uh, your neighbors had the opportunity and had the right to raise you. Uh, so where mama wasn't around and grandma wasn't around and daddy wasn't around, when your neighbors saw you acting out of character, uh, they became your on-the-spot parents because it was a community investment. And we once enjoyed that as a community and we saw the fruits thereof. Now we have shifted to a degree to where we have abandoned the village approach and have now taken an individual approach uh, as it relates to our community. And so I want to encourage you right now in 2020 that we have a great opportunity to really show a, a very powerful uh, force uh, as it relates to um, our dollars. Um, I want to I want to share this with you uh, because I mentioned to I mentioned to you uh, 1954 and the statistics of 16 billion dollars in buying power in 1954 with all of the issues that were facing in 1954. One in four black families owned a house, had a car uh, in the driveway. Uh, little is known about this man named Jeremiah Hamilton. Uh, Jeremiah Hamilton lived in 1875, and many of us erroneously think that the first black millionaire was Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, she was not. Uh, the first black millionaire was a man by the name of Jeremiah Hamilton, uh, who resided in New York. And ironically, Jeremiah Hamilton was a Wall Street banker. In 1875, when he died, he died with a net asset of $2 million dollars. So this black man in 1865 died with a net value of $2 million. If you equate that to with the cost of inflation and everything that we have in 2020, Jeremiah Hamilton would have had in today's dollars about $250 million to his name. But in 1875, this man named Jeremiah Hamilton walked in and around Wall Street for about 40 years. He worked in Wall Street for about 40 years. And he was far from a novice around the, uh, the economy of Wall Street. He was a skilled and innovator uh, financial man. He was skilled. And, and he was one that understood the value of something that we're getting ready to talk about and a way in which it was able to produce him wealth. And so this man walked around the streets of New York, up and down Wall Street in 1875, and by all accounts was a very shrewd businessman a very shrewd businessman. Um, immediately following the Emancipation Proclamation of uh, 1865, there were 4,000 uh, millionaires in America, in the United States of America. Now watch this. Immediately following the Emancipation Proclamation, the freeing of all these slaves in 1863, uh, being realized in 1865, out of the 4,000 uh, millionaires that were in America during that time, six of them were African-American. Six of the first millions of slaves that were freed during the Emancipation Proclamation between 1830 and 1927 were black millionaires. I want you to think about this because this is stuff that they don't teach us in history. Uh, you didn't learn about this during Black History Month. That during the right after the Emancipation Proclamation, um, six black millionaires merged on the scene. I want to list them for you. There's a man, uh, excuse me, a woman by the name of Mary Ellen, uh, Ellen Peasant, uh, who used her gold rush wealth to further the case of the abolitionist John Brown. Uh, Mary Ellen was a person that uh, invested in gold. Uh, there was another man by the name of Robert Reed Church, 
uh, who became the largest landowner in Tennessee. Uh, there was another woman by the name of Hannah Elias. Now, this woman was very interesting in that she was the mistress of the New York City millionaire who had uh, who had gave her land upon his death and who had built an empire in Harlem. So these are three of the six people that we don't learn about in our history who were black during a time of great oppression, who were able to harness the financial power of their day. For example, 71% of married individuals with a child in mortgage have, uh, have coverage in comparison to just 27% of individuals who are single. So what does that mean? 
when the breadwinner is taken out of the house, then you have a significant, um, you, you have a less significant portion of money that is now coming into that house. So what life insurance does and investment does is it buffers that particular wage that has now been taken out of the house. And so what white America and other ethnicity, uh, ethnicities have been able to do is to leverage home ownership and life insurance to buffer their financial portfolio. Now, black people do have life insurance, but they have these small policies. And many of these small policies are $5,000, $10,000, $25,000, whatever it may be. Just enough money to hire a funeral home and to put you in the ground. There is no lasting value to the home to the life insurance that will be able to tra be transferred down from generation to generation. And so what what has happened is people understand the capacity of building financial wealth through home ownership and through life insurance and or investments. And so one of the ways that you are able to do that is to understand the value of life insurance. And again, to go back to what we started with in Isaiah 38, Isaiah told Hezekiah, you are going to die. Get your house in order. You are going to die. Get your house in order. And so when we're understanding that, when we understand the capacity of us dying, and it's a very real reality for all of us, we have to do things now to prepare for that eventual day. And one of the ways that you can do that is by um, harnessing these two very um, substantial ways in order to increase uh, net profits. I want to end with this. Um, there are top reasons why African-Americans cite um, uh, having a lack of uh, personal life insurance. Um, this is important that we understand this uh, because life insurance has the capacity to leave a legacy. Death is already hard by itself. It's already hard by itself. But when you include mama, daddy, no longer being there, and the average funeral right now in 2020 is around about $9,500. So you got to throw $9,500 into a hole. And so now you're already grieving because of the loss of a loved one. And now you have the additional financial stress that comes along with having to come up with these said monies. Heaven forbid that there was a medical issue that required hospitalization and the monies that have to come with that. And so the, the pressures that come with money are overwhelming to say the least. But what does it mean about understanding how we can do this better? One, uh, we need to understand that we can do better uh, within our own communities. Black Americans understand this. 68% of black Americans, African Americans, um, cite that they want to leave a legacy for their family. 68% of them. 68% uh, said that when I leave, uh, I want to make sure that the family that I leave is in a better position than when I left. Okay. So 68% of them cite that, that they want to leave a legacy um, for their children. This is according to New York life. 28% uh, of black America understand that they can use life insurance as a vehicle to transfer wealth, to transfer wealth. So to your kids, kids, to your kids, kids, kids. Um, so it's, it is a, it is a, uh, absolutely, um, viable vehicle for us to close this gap that is existing right now in 2020. And we're going to talk about this in a later podcast when I have uh, Michael G. Davis, who is a real estate agent who owns his own real estate firm, 
uh, and talking about the value of home ownership as it relates to African-Americans. There are many programs out there that spurn, um, that encourage African-American home ownership. Um, You will be benefited greatly by owning a home. And there are programs out there that can help you to achieve uh, those particular endeavors. There are programs also that are aimed to help you get in a position to where you can get home ownership. And so I wanna make sure that we put forth the best information possible here on Studio B, bring it to a biblical perspective to where what God has said about where we are right now as a culture and how we can move forward um, in regards to the times in which we're living in. Um, But I also want you to understand this. Um, We bear a personal responsibility for where we are right now in the world. Um, We owe a personal responsibility to the generation that is following us. And it is time that we have some very, very real conversations, loving conversations uh, about how we can come together as a people group to expand where we are, uh, to make it better for the generations to follow. And I believe one of the ways that we can do that is by having conversations like we're having here. So I pray uh, in Jesus name that the information that we're bringing forth on this podcast is, uh, first of all, it is well researched, but I pray that it is received uh, in a spirit by which it is given. Um, that saints of God, I believe that God wants us to do better. I believe that God has ordained for us to be better. And I believe that by God's grace, we can be better. And so I want to encourage you in Jesus name. And I want to thank you for joining us uh, here on the set of Studio B. Again, make sure you go to Facebook, Twitter, IG, go to uh, YouTube.com, search us uh, at Studio B. Make sure you click subscribe and that bell to the right so that you're up to date on all of our current episodes. See you next week.